All right. Greetings, families. This is Davon Love, Director of Public Policy, Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. I'm here with you again on Streets of the State House, uh, brought to you by Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. Um, it's important. I want people to know that a big part as to how we're able to give you this analysis on the Maryland General Assembly that's rooted in Black liberation is through the fact that we have people that support us independently. Um, you know, we're an organization from which the sustainers that we get, the people that financially support our organization through monthly donations, provides us the basis to be able to finance and to support the work that allows us to speak unapologetically about, you know, politics of Baltimore, the state of Maryland, um, again, from a, from, a, from a radical perspective. So we want to thank everybody uh, for continuing to support what we do. And we urge people that like the content that you get from this um, to support um, the work we do, um, to learn more about what we do and, and, and to get involved. So. This is really an update. We're halfway through the Maryland General Assembly. Um, and so this is a time where we want to just give some general updates about some of the things that we're working on, some of the things we're paying attention to. If folks have things who are watching that they want, you know, to let people know about or ask people to keep an eye on, feel free to hop in, you know, put that in the comments. Let us know some of the things that um, you're working on or paying attention to that is important, particularly as it relates to black people in the state of Maryland. So that's something that we hope, you know, you all come on and, and provide some of that commentary as well. Um, what I want to do really before I jump into some of the specific things that we want to discuss, I want to frame the conversation. This is a frame that you that you've heard us, you know, talk about, you know, as a as a theme and a strength throughout our work. But something that I want to reiterate, um, I actually wrote a piece that appeared in Maryland Matters at the end of last year um, that really talked about this Maryland General Assembly being a test as to whether or not the legislature would truly live up to the image that I believe it wants people to have of it as a body that embraces racial and social justice. And, and and this would be a test because there are going to be really important pieces of legislation um, and many of them that really should be no brainers that are going to be put on the table and that this was an opportunity to really demonstrate a commitment to racial justice in, in the state of Maryland. So, again, we're halfway through. And one of the things that I have to say is that in many ways, I'm actually quite disappointed in the legislature. Um, based, again, on much of what has been said about the direction that this legislature claims it wants to go. And what I mean by this is, is that, you know, when those who are familiar with LBS, you've heard our criticism of the Democratic Party leadership. And you've heard the way that we've described how the Democrats are mostly interested in appearing to do justice on the issues that impact black people while not making the important structural changes and going far enough in that direction that it actually delivers for the masses of black people. So that that's generally been our analysis as to how the leadership, um, how the Democratic Party has operated in the state of Maryland. And unfortunately, a big part of how this manifests itself is that oftentimes those that are placed in positions of leadership are often just more conservative on issues that impact black people, particularly in some of the areas that we're going to discuss today. But I wanted to raise that at the top um, because one of the things that we've been, I think that we've been encouraged to or asked to accept is this notion that the legislature is moving further in the direction that I'm describing, that there is an appetite for racial justice and that the legislature is moving more in the direction 
um, that would align with our values and perspective. And part of the problem with that, part of the problem with that is that we're the, the frame that is being used as the measurement for what's acceptable is being based on a frame that was not acceptable in the first place, right? Again, that's a quote people hear me use a lot, but I think it's just such an apt quote where Malcolm X says, you don't put a knife in a person's back nine inches, pull it back three and say you've made progress. And what the Democratic Party continues to do is to, in, in, in policy terms, pull the knife out two or three inches. And we just refuse to announce that as progress. We refuse to announce that as progress. And so it's really important that, you know, those of you that are organizing to pressure legislator um, to respond to, to, to our legislative measures and some of the other measures that folks who come on this program and folks that you've seen us support, the efforts that we've seen us support in our work. Um, I just think it's important for us um, to be continuing to pressure the legislature and never be seduced by the notion that because we have, you know, a black woman as a speaker of the House of Delegates or that we have a Senate president that at least theoretically is more progressive than the previous one, that we should not take those in and of themselves as victories. And so I wanted to lay that at the, t at the top as the context for the update that I want to give on some of the issues um, that LBS is working on this session. Things we're working on, the things that we're observing um, and watching um, during during this Maryland General Assembly. Um, I want to start actually with youth, youth interrogations because I just think it's such a good litmus test for where the legislature is. So, for those who are familiar, you know there was a series that came out. It was uh, produced, uh, directed by Ava DuVernay uh, when they see us, right? So it talked about. Um, you know, what some people call the Central Park Five or the Exonerated Five, um, where they were, you know, teenagers who were compelled to give false testimony and landed many of them to spend many years in jail uh, based on um, based on that. And so there's a bill that's been in the legislature for at this point, the past three years when they see us. That's right. As a kid. And so for, there's been a um, bill that's been in the legislature for the past three years that would do simply that would require um, an officer when they're engaged in a custodial interrogation of a minor, that they are to notify the parents They're required to notify the parents and have an attorney present. Right. So that that's really the base. That's basically what the bill does. This is a bill that we're on year three and we're in a moment where this bill is experiencing some difficulty in terms of it getting moving. It passed the House last session, right? Um, and and I publicly, you know, in the last podcast, I publicly gave credit to Chair Luke Clippinger for the bill being moved last year. You know, people who remember, you know, I wrote a piece that talked about um, criticizing moderate uh, or, or white moderates, liberals, and how to commit it more to, to order than to justice, and about the youth interrogations as an example of that. Um, and that bill moved out of the House last session. Right. So, you know, publicly give him and this House Judiciary Committee credit for that. Uh, but this session, it still has to moved out of either chamber. Um, and this is such a no brainer. Like this, this piece of legislation is such a no brainer um, that it's really it, it, it's just it's preposterous that that this should even be something that's difficult to, to get through the legislature. 
And this proves the larger point that I made at the top, right? These are the kinds of things that because these no-brainers have a hard time getting past. So I want to talk a little bit about what's underneath that. Because as, as many of you, I'm sure, are aware, um, the governor has been putting a lot of time and resources into his public safety package, which likely won't move through the legislature. But it has a larger discursive impact on the way that certain policies are understood and the way that they're received. What I mean by that is that any measure. So when you think about youth interrogations, I think the honest thing and no one will say it, I think, out loud. But I think it's it's what undergirds much of the resistance to policies like youth interrogations and some of the other criminal justice stuff that we're going to talk about in a moment, that what undergirds it is that there is an underlying belief that law enforcement is not able to effectively execute their duty around public safety without the ability to violate the rights of black people, right? That, that's really the underlying logic of how the conversations about public safety in many ways are being weaponized against efforts like youth interrogation, right? Because that's one of the principal underlying concerns that again, folks won't say in public space, but in the conversations in Annapolis, in the back rooms, that's really what's underneath that. There's a similar effort around um, stopping the charging, the automatic charging of youth, youth as adults. So that's, a, that's another effort that is that complements this effort around youth interrogations. And again, I think the underlying talking point around public safety is this larger belief that, that, that law enforcement is inhibited um, if it's not able to engage in practices that violate um, you know, black people's rights and humanity. So, so that's really update on that. We're hoping that the House and the Senate soon, because this bill has been heard in both chambers already and both in the committees on both sides. And so we're hope we're hoping and we're asking the, those of you that are listening to this live or, or who will listen to it later um, to continue to put pressure um, on uh, both chairmen of both committees. So the chair of the House, Luke Clippinger, who's the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, and the chair of the Senate Judicial Proceedings Committee, uh, Senator Will Smith. Um, so we're going to ask, continue all um, to continue to ask you all to put pressure on them to move that bill and the package of juvenile justice bills that complement it out of those out of those committees and support. You know, there are many other groups that have been you know leading the way. Um, you know, so Bridge Maryland, Baltimore Algebra Project. Um, you know, Architects of Justice, Elevate, uh, Alpha Justice, there are a variety of organizations, ACLU of Maryland, um, there are a variety of organizations that have been, you know, pushing, um, you know, for this piece of legislation to finally make it out of both committees. And so, again, we urge um, you all to pressure the chairs and, and both committees um, and the legislators and both the legislators in both committees to get this piece of legislation out. The juvenile, you know, youth interrogations and the other accompanying juvenile justice policies out. Next, what I want to do is an update on uh, cannabis legalization. So as many of you know, um, this is a year where both presiding officers have said publicly that this is going to be the year that cannabis is legalized. <clears throat> and as we've talked about in previous podcasts during the session, there are different approaches uh, between the House and Senate. Primarily, the approach where the House is more interested in a referendum 
as opposed to the Senate that wants to pass a bill straight out that legalizes cannabis. <clears throat> I think there is a general agreement that whether it's a referendum or the bill is passed straight up, that there's a general agreement that some policy has to accompany the referendum, right? Because you can't just ask the question of yes, no, should cannabis be legalized, but not know like, you know, will it continue to be criminalized? Will people be able to grow it in their houses? You know, all these all these particulars um, that people want to know if they're going to vote um, for um, this measure. One thing I want to highlight for you all is that the ACLU, Maryland, ACLU of Maryland actually commissioned a poll um, that actually outlines a lot of information that bodes well for the effort around cannabis legalization. And in fact, one of the things that it highlights is that people are more likely to support the effort of legalization if it's connected to reparative justice and if it's connected to um, decriminalization so that law enforcement resources are not wasted going after those who are, you know, consuming cannabis. So we encourage you all. Um, and Adam's got up on the screen this new poll that's on the ACLU of Maryland's website. So we encourage you all to take a look at that to give you some information about where Maryland just stand um, on the issue of cannabis legalization. So, um, so just to break down in terms of where we are legislatively. So the House moved very quickly. Um, HB1 was a question of the referendum. HB837 was a bill that included some policy. And what the House has said is that it will deal with the regulatory business stuff next year, but it will deal with the criminal justice stuff this year. And it does have some um, programmatic things there in terms of funding for public health related things regarding cannabis and a business training and assistance fund <clears throat> that's in HB 837. I'll talk about briefly in a moment. But that is the primary thrust of, eight, of HB 837. Again, it moved very quickly out of the House. And, and unfortunately, while um, the bill does go a lot further than it did in its original form, it still has criminal penalties for high amounts of possession and with possession would intend to distribute. <clears throat> and that's important. When you look at the state of Maryland and what happened um, in 2014, when Maryland decriminalized 10 grams or less of possession, there was a decrease in people being charged with possession, but an increase in people being charged with intent, with possession with intent to distribute. So what that means is that, you know, law enforcement has gotten dependent on using someone's proximity to cannabis as the basis for, you know, probable cause and their approach to public safety. So it's really important that when we look at the data as to the just the level, the extreme level of the disproportionate interaction of black people with law enforcement, a lot of it has to do with folks who are um, charged with or assumed to, have, to be possessing or distributing cannabis. And so those criminal penalties, what we've seen in other states is that in some places, particularly in California, where what has happened, the rise of legalization of cannabis, cannabis companies have actually invested money for lobbyists to increase criminal penalties because they see it as competing with the market. And so if we leave criminal penalties in existence, it'll continue to exacerbate the way in which black people are criminalized as a result of our as a, as a result of the way that law enforcement um, 
you know, uses cannabis. And and what's really important, you know, there there are people in our community, uh, and when I say like there are black people within our community for whom I think carries certain stigma about cannabis um, that that produces some of the pushback. So because I, I want to be precise and and just identify that not all of the pushback against the getting rid of criminal penalties has to do with conservative prosecutors or people that are conservative on public safety. There's a lot of that, but there's also black folks within our community who are just conservative on the issue of people consuming um, and engaging cannabis. Um, but what I will say, there are two things. One is, is that there is a drug dealer archetype that I think has permeated through the imagination of many of those that are in the policymaking arena that completely is at odds with reality. And what I mean by, and I'll just say it real plainly, you know, anybody knows anything about what happens, you know, on the street level, a person selling large amounts of, of, of cannabis, people don't really consider them a drug dealer. These aren't the people that are the drivers of violence in the community, right? And, and, the, and all the evidence indicates that the use of cannabis prohibition as a public safety tool is ineffective. So that's just an important point to, so even for those who may, <clears throat> excuse me, disapprove of the use of cannabis, we should be clear that it as a public safety um, method or it being used for public safety there's just no basis for that as an effective public safety measure. And so that's something that, again, if the Democratic Party, right, and those in leadership are interested in helping move our community, that's a that's a talking point that they need to, to bolster so that people truly understand that the science and the data on this question are definitively on our side of that question. Lastly, on the issue of cannabis, um. I read somewhere where Senator Ferguson, who's the Senate president, and talking to the press, he mentioned the importance of repairing the war on drugs, but talked about that maybe the reinvestment of the revenues may not happen this year. And one of the things that LBS and our partners on this issue have stressed is that while the criminal justice aspect of this are essential, which again includes <clears throat> vacating criminal records that came as a result of marijuana prohibition, includes giving people the opportunity to have their sentences reconsidered. Um, the, you know, these are the kinds of things that are important um, in making sure that, because that's a part of repairing the harm. But if we're not talking about reparations, if we're not talking about actually investing in the communities directly impacted by the war on drugs, that's not racial justice. And it makes sense, <coughs> excuse me, that liberals will be more comfortable um, that liberals will be more comfortable um, addressing the criminal justice aspect as opposed to actually dealing with some of the ways in which investment needs to happen to provide the kind of empowerment for our communities to be able to emerge empowered and self-sufficient. We need resources to do that, um, to actually repair the, the harm that's been done um, on the war on drugs. And so, again, we want to urge you all to urge your legislators and to make it clear that, you know, there may be some questions as to how we deal with the regulatory issue. Um, you know, I think it's important to deal with it now. It makes sense. There's some arguments that I think make sense as to why we should deal with it later. As to why we should deal with it later. Some legitimate arguments to that end. But in terms of the reinvestment piece, that's something that needs to be 
included in whatever passes this year. And I will add one of the things that we like about HB 837 is that there's a portion of it in the place where it creates a business, a cannabis business assistance fund <clears throat> where they partner that says that they partner with state government with, you know, so-called minority serving institutions to provide grants and loans to different organizations and programs and entrepreneurs. We actually like that part of the bill of HB 837 and think that that could marry well with what we have advocated for in Senator Carter's bill um, that we're supporting, that we were a part of helping to put forward Senator Carter's bill, Senate Bill 692, um, which what it does is that 60% of the tax revenues will go to the Community Repair and Investment Fund. Those funds will go directly to the jurisdictions and the jurisdiction, the percentage of those resources that the jurisdictions get will be um, will be produced, will be um, developed based on their jurisdiction's contribution percentage of the statewide arrest for marijuana over the past 20 years. So what that does is that the resources will be dealt, will be given out proportional to the way that those communities have been harmed. And then it requires those local jurisdictions to pass a law that would determine how those resources are allocated uh, with guardrails. So those guardrails include things like those resources, you know, can't go to law enforcement activities. Those resources can't be used to supplant existing government programs or services. They have to target communities impacted by the war on drugs. And there's a reporting requirement in there. So there's a report every two years to the Maryland General Assembly for oversight as to how those resources are spent. So we think what I mentioned, that's an HB 837 that we like, married with this re community reinvestment fund, we think very well. And we think needs to be in whatever comes out of the whatever comes out of Maryland, Maryland General Assembly on cannabis. Last thing I'll talk about on cannabis, <coughs> excuse me, is um, in the Senate, there are two bills. I already mentioned Senator Carter's um, SB 692. There was also a bill that was the product of a work group, an informal work group in the Senate, chaired by Senator Feldman, uh, Brian Feldman out of Montgomery County. He has a bill, Senate Bill 833. Um, and in his bill, um, and there are a bunch of us that testified against his bill, um, while his bill on the criminal justice stuff actually goes further than the House went, um, the, on the reinvestment side of it in particular, it creates this office of social equity. And one of the problem, one of the many problems with this notion of off the, the office of social equity, it's essentially a nonprofit that a new nonprofit that will live within state government. <clears throat> and it's a centralized nonprofit bureaucratic structure that would give grants in places that are characterizing the bill as disproportionate impact areas. Um, and so a couple of things wrong with that. One is with gentrification happening, not just in Baltimore, but around the state, it could be quite easy for people in those areas that may traditionally have been disproportionately impacted to get access to resources and, and, and the like through this office. Second, but the most important piece, and one of the things that people who are familiar with LBS's work know of our criticism of the nonprofit industrial complex, the way in which large centralized white-led nonprofit entities essentially establish themselves as a center of gravity, and they give out dollars in, in ways that, that don't actually get to the grassroots, that don't get to grassroots organizations. We think what we propose is something that will more likely get to grassroots organizations than a highly bureaucratic, highly centralized at the state level, Office of Social Equity. 
So, so that's that's really our biggest criticism um, of Senate Bill 833. And again, we're going to urge people, you know, in the next few weeks, there are going to be conversations to be had about what moves out <clears throat> of the uh, Senate Finance Committee, because that's where uh, the bill was was assigned. So there's going to be some important conversations. Again, we're going to ask you all to help support us and making sure that what comes out is no criminal penalties on uh uh, on cannabis, when cannabis legal, no criminal penalties for possession or possession with intent to distribute, <clears throat> you know, codify things around order searches. So order searches aren't used um, as a way to, you know, probable cause um, and it's overused against our community. Um, you know, we want to ensure that uh, people are able to get their records vacated, that people are able to have their um, sentences reconsidered that were based on cannabis. We want the community reinvestment fund and those resources to go directly to the communities impacted by the war on drugs. And we want regulatory measures um, that provide more incentives for companies to do business um, with black entities um, and that provide more incentives and in some way set aside some licenses for black growers and dispensers. Um, so so that's the um, so that's the important piece on cannabis. That we wanted to give you an update. And be sure to check us out as we continue to give you an update in terms of how the bill is going to be moving um, through the finance committee and ultimately how the House and Senate reconcile um, what's going to happen on, on both sides. <clears throat> and then last major update, um, and this is a local matter for Baltimore City, the Civilian Review Board. So <clears throat> as many of you know from our advocacy last session, and police accountability. You know, one of the thing, one of the reasons we focused so much on the Maryland Law Enforcement Officer Bill of Rights last set for for many years is because for us it was the primary impediment to community oversight. So if you look at the history of black radical movements on issues of police violence, the primary objective for many, in, in fact, not even just for some of the radical black organizations, but even some of the mainstream civil rights organizations. There was a focus and emphasis on community oversight, the community having investigatory power and ability to discipline police officers who've, who've done harm to folks in our community. So that's something that we pushed for last session. We didn't get there. Right. We got some community involvement in certain internal processes of discipline, but not community oversight. Well, one of the things that was an honest oversight, I believe, of leadership last session was they didn't contemplate what happens in jurisdictions that have existing oversight entities. And so, um, and so Baltimore City and Prince George's County currently have civilian oversight entities. And what's important to note about HB 670 um, that passed last session, it requires each jurisdiction to establish a police accountability board. These police accountability boards serve as the organizational container for community to be able to, to make complaints of law enforcement officers. Um, it has the, uh, the ability to um, interact with leadership in the police department. It appoints members to the administrative charging committee. So, the, so the police accountability board in each jurisdiction is supposed to pass a local ordinance that will determine how those police accountability boards are constituted, you know, how they're populated. But again, this is duplicative if you have an existing oversight entity. So Baltimore City is one of those one of those entities. What's also important to note about Baltimore City is that technically Baltimore City's police department is not a is not a is not a city agency. It's technically a state agency. 
So when the Civilian Review Board that Baltimore has was created in 1999, it had to be created at the state level because <clears throat> it's not it's not a local entity; it's a state entity. It's been in existence for many years. Those who were the proponents back in back then of the Civilian Review Board again, they didn't get what they ultimately wanted. They wanted more investigatory power and they wanted disciplinary power. They didn't get the disciplinary power, but they did get limited subpoena power and investigatory power. Well, what we figured shortly after session was that there needed to be, we being, you know, the Maryland Coalition of Justice, Police, Accountability, um, what we figured was that there would need to be a reconciling of the existing oversight entity and this requirement of establishing the police accountability boards. So what we, what to us made the most sense, and we actually went through a process where we talked to the Civilian Review Board, the Republic meetings that the Civilian Review Board had for people to make a comment about this, and, and the decision that was made by the CRB was that PAB power should just be absorbed into the existing civilian review board. This would give the CRB additional powers and responsibilities because of that which is given to the PABs, but retain the limited investigatory and subpoena power that the CRB currently has that the other PABs do not. And it was our perspective that this Baltimore CRB should not be required to give up powers Right. It should it should maintain the powers that it has, because that's what people have continued to fight for. So HB 991, Senate Bill 441 was a bill that essentially did that. It absorbed it, it gave the police accountability board powers to the Civilian Review Board, um, codifying its ability to have independent counsel, having a budgetary mandate, because one of the biggest challenges of the CRB was it not having the funding that it needed. Um, and so a funding mandate. Um and making it more independent, more explicitly independent from the city. Excuse me. So those are the things that are in the bill. And to be honest, I didn't expect there to be a whole lot of resistance from the city because it just seems to be the most effective thing to do. Instead of building a whole new entity, you just build on top of what you have. And I have to be very honest that I, we've been flabbergasted at the city's response. The city on the record has opposed this bill. Um. When we talked to the city back in the fall, the city had no plan as to how it was going to create a police accountability board, what the procedure was going to be. Um, and we continue to ask them what their plan is. Um, but in their opposition and to be and to be frank, just there's been the, the, the city's government relations folks. I think they just lacked a fundamental understanding of just how all these pieces work, because it was their belief that the powers that the CRB currently has, that they could do that locally. And, you know, so there was just a level of just lack of understanding, to be honest, in terms of how all these different pieces work. But again, they opposed, they opposed this on the record. They testified this Baltimore City Senate delegation against the bill and have written testimony against the bill, which, again, for a lot of us is a no-brainer because this bill isn't even as far as we'd like it to go. If you look at the consent decree, and you look at the report from the Civilian Oversight Task Force, <clears throat> you'll see that what our bill offers is weaker than what it is the consent decree from the code of report suggests the oversight entity should be. Um, so, again, we're really surprised. We're really disappointed um, you know, in the administration. Um, we recently had an attorney, uh, an attorney general's opinion um, that Senator Carter requested weeks ago that actually came in last week. And the AG's opinion essentially 
mirrors what we've been saying in terms of the rationale behind the bill um, and that people should support the bill. So, so, and we'll make that available to the public, but the AG's opinion essentially says what we say about, you know, the legitimacy of, of what the bill does. Um, and so the CRB is in support of the bill. Um, again, the, um, the city has not provided a plan. We are in negotiations currently with the city um, in terms of amendments that we could live with. Um, And so, you know, we're trying to, you know, find a place where there could be some agreement because we'd rather the administration be on board. Um, But we've seen no plan. The Baltimore City Senate delegation, as I understand it, based on the meeting from Friday, (coughs) excuse me, um, they plan on vote. They plan to vote on the bill this Friday. So, you know, again, we're going to ask you all um, call, you know, call your legislators, send them an email, particularly if they're in the Baltimore City Senate delegation um, to to pressure them to vote for this bill. If it gets out of the Senate delegation, then it will likely pass the Senate out of local courtesy. The House sponsors Delegate Stephanie Smith, who's the chair of the House delegation in Baltimore City. So we don't expect much turbulence from that side. And just in our conversations with members of the House, there seem to be a little, a lot more understanding as to our perspective and not nearly the resistance. So uh, for those who are interested in supporting that effort, um, you know, please um, reach out to uh, members of the Baltimore city Senate delegation so we can get a favorable vote um, this Friday um, for that. So that was a lot of information. <clears throat> those were the updates for what we're working on this session. Um, again, if there are other issues that folks want to raise, um, you know, we're probably going to do one or two more of these podcasts uh, before the session's over. Um, so we definitely want to invite people to reach out if there are issues that you, you know, that you think that we should be watching. All right. So we're going to I'm going to do a quick pivot. Um, so one of the things that, um, you know, LBS has been openly supportive of, you know, you heard us talk about the importance of the Democratic Party leader, challenging Democratic Party leadership. And we say that not because, you know, we don't see Republicans as being better than Democrats. We just know that in a state where, you know, Democrats have a supermajority in the legislature and are just dominant in many parts of the state, <clears throat> that they're the ones that exercise an extraordinary you know, amount of control. Um, and I think that supermajority, um, given the lack of being able to deliver on policy that I talked about at the top, um, demonstrates that we need to find innovative ways to challenge the Democrats um, in ways that don't that, that we're not reliant on them um, electorally. And so LBS has been publicly supportive of the notion that we need alternative um, party formations um, as necessary, both to build new alternatives electorally, um, in addition to putting pressure on the Democrats to get concessions that are important for our community. So with that, I want to bring on a good friend of mine, longtime friend, Andy Ellis, um, who's with the Green Party here in Maryland and Baltimore. Um, Andy, always good to see you. Thank you for joining us this evening on the podcast. How you been? I've been good. Good to see you, Davon. Thank you for having me on tonight. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So what I want to do first is ask you to talk about the particular um, legislative effort you're working on. Introduce yourself a little bit more and then talk about the legislative effort that you're working on. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So um, as Dave, I mentioned, I'm with the Baltimore City Green Party. I've been active with them for about five years. I've worked with the state party as well. Um, and I'm also, you know, just a generally I'm generally committed to the notion of grassroots democracy, because I think that if we put power into the hands of voters and people, uh, we, we find ways to challenge policies and 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 aren't reliant on the lawmakers who are currently elected in order to put into place the things that people and communities need. So, um, you know, I've been I've been in Baltimore about 15 years, um, probably about 17 years at this point. My timeline is still sort of skewed to the beginning of the pandemic sometimes. But, um, you know, I got here 2005. I worked with some debate at Towson, debate in the city, uh, and have recently been really focused on the Green Party effort because I think Baltimore needs a multi-party people-driven democracy uh, if we're ever to get our way out of the things that one party and two party rule has gotten us into. So talk a little bit about the the legislation you're working on that, that deals with that. Totally. So uh, the bill that we that we are working on and I'm working on this year is HB 1089, introduced by Delegate Sheila Ruth. Last year it was introduced by Delegate Ruth and Senator Carter, and this year it's being reintroduced again by Delegate Ruth. What it does... Um, what the bill actually does is call on the state board of elections to develop regulations so that signatures on petitions can be done digitally instead of uh, in ink. That's a relatively small technicality um, that occurs within election law. Uh, where it's important is that there are four types of things that use these petitions. Two of them are granted by the Maryland Constitution, and those deal with referendum against um, legislative authority or against bills passed by the legislature. And the other is charter amendments. So you think about sometimes you'll be out in the spring and you'll be at a farmer's market or a festival or something and there'll be somebody there with the clipboard and some petitions asking you to sign on to either uh, you know expand the transit authority or expand a housing accountability thing many of us have encountered these folks so those are two sort of policy making efforts that are tied to the petition the other types of efforts that are tied to the petition are to get unaffiliated candidates onto the ballot and to get new parties onto the ballot. So every four years, the, the parties that aren't the Democrats and Republicans in Maryland have to collect 10,000 petitions in order, for, in order for there to be a Green Party ballot line, in order for there to be a Udema People's Progress ballot line. Um, so there's, those are the four areas of petitioning. And during COVID, um, the Board of Elections uh, took authority that existed within their policy and allowed electronic signatures because obviously people in March of 2000 shouldn't have been out standing face to face with people collecting signatures, swapping pens and clipboards back and forth. So the State Board of Elections allowed that for the 2000 election. They extended it a couple of times. And then ultimately, while they agreed that it was within their authority to make that permanent, they ultimately decided that it should be up to the legislature to make it permanent because, um, you know, the State Board of Elections doesn't want to go out and use a regulatory policy change that changes something like that without getting uh, the buy-in from the legislature. So that's sort of where we are on it right now. It's been introduced. Uh, there was there was a hearing in Ways and Means last week on it. Uh, it will be in the election law subcommittee, and we hope to get it out this year uh, so that it allows electronic petition signatures. And we can talk in a second about what, why that's important, but that's basically what the bill does. So, you know, you mentioned that the, 
you know, one of the principal issues that's relevant to the work that you do um, is the importance of being able to get those electronic signatures for people that are not affiliated political candidates. Yep. And and so it might be helpful, I think, for those listening, for you to talk a little bit about some of the more technical things that get in the way of people that are not Democrats to really participate. Right. And why it is that this kind of measure is an important measure and and chipping away at that. Yeah. So uh, for if you want to file to run for office as a Democrat or Republican, you simply go to the Board of Elections and say, I want to run for this office. They check your paperwork, you, f- you submit it, and then you com- you compete in a primary, and then you compete in a general if you win that. If you're an unaffiliated candidate, you have to collect uh, a percentage of the voters, you have to collect signatures from a percentage of the voters in your district that say that they want you to be on the ballot. Many states require all candidates to do that. Maryland doesn't do that. Maryland says if you have a party affiliation, you can file, um, and then the primary will work it out. But for unaffiliated candidates, for somebody who wants to run as an independent or doesn't want to be affiliated with a party, they have to collect these signatures, turn them into the state board of elections. And there's been a lot of lawsuits over the over the years about exactly what they'll accept as a signature. So uh, you see my name on here as Andy Ellis. That's not how the state recognizes me. And if I had signed one of the petitions as Andy Ellis, even though it was very clear that it had my information, my birth date, all of that information, they would look and they would say, um, nope, Andy Ellis doesn't exist. Uh, a person by the name of Andy Ellis doesn't exist in the State Board of Elections database. Um, my middle name is Andrew. So if I put Andy on there, that wouldn't work. My first name is different. Lots of people don't know exactly the way that they filled out their voter registration card. Um, you know, and, you know, I could have filled it out as Steve Ellis, which is my first name, but, um, you know, I wrote Stephen on the petition. And so little picky things like this allow the State Board of Elections to throw different different parts of these petitions out. Uh, and the other thing, the other part of it, too, is that the current practice is if, if I want Dave, if Davon wants to sign a petition to get the Green Party on the ballot, Davon and I have to be in the same space at the same time um, so that he can sign it, I can watch him sign it, uh, and I can attest under penalty of perjury that I saw him sign it. Now, if if you are transit dependent or if you don't have if you have disability or if you are a working mom who can't get out to the farmer's market where the petition you want to sign is or if any number of things uh stop you from being in the same place as one of the petitioners uh out there for that you really don't have a great way to be able to take the right granted to you by the maryland constitution and sign that petition so what this aims to do is to say If that transit dependent working mom who can't get to the farmer's market on a Saturday morning to sign the petition for something she believes in, she can just go online, click a button, put her information in, check it against the State Board of Elections database. And if she is validly a voter, legitimately allowed to sign that, uh, at that point, it would count. It would be sent to the organization that is collecting the petition and they would turn it into the state board. So what we see this as is we see this as a way to extend what is a voting right guaranteed by the Maryland Constitution um, to petition or for charter amendments and to petition to referendum and a voting right guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution to nominate candidates and run uh, and, and have alternative parties uh, that is being inhibited by the state's 
um, lack of a, a willingness to adopt 21st century technology um, at this point. Um, and it has real access, uh, it, you know, it has real access issues and it presents real barriers to people who may want to simply take advantage of a right that they're given, but uh, that they're given by the Constitution, but may not happen to be in the same place as the petitioner. Uh, and the mere concept that we would restrict of, I mean, imagine if that was how we handled other voting rights. Uh, if in order to register to vote, you had to be in the same place as somebody who's running a voter registration drive, or even more pointedly, if in order to vote, you had to encounter somebody who was collecting ballots. Uh, we don't think that's the way that voting rights should be handled in the state of Maryland. We think if the Constitution gives people the right to vote on or gives people a right as as a voter, they should be able to use that right in the way that is the easiest and makes sense to them uh, and is accessible to them without some sort of quaint notion that you have to look me in the eyes in order to know whether that's a petition you agree with. So taking taking that and thinking about some of the larger political implications, because certainly what you're describing is something that would lend itself to, you know, the ability for a variety of different electoral formations to emerge and to be able to have a presence. And when you think about, you know, what Du Bois once said about black people as a captured electorate, um, you know, and that's not just rhetoric. When you think about like here in Maryland, where in order, particularly if you live in places like Baltimore City or heavily Democratic jurisdictions, in order for your vote to have a meaningful impact on the electoral outcomes, right? You got to be registered as a Democrat, right? I'm a registered Democrat, right? I'm not a registered Democrat because I like the Democrats or support them or believe in them. I'm a registered Democrat because given the way the structure is set up, that my ability to have an impact electorally is based on an affiliation with the Democratic Party. And so it is that, it is, it is the reality of being a captured electorate um, that I think creates in many ways a dynamic where the Democratic Party is essentially able to curate the types of leadership that we get that produces some of the reformists, some of the more moderate kinds of policies that, you know, I talked about in the beginning of this broadcast. And one of the things that that I think sometimes is difficult for people to to wrap their brains around because it isn't explained in public places, is that what is the political benefits of supporting third party candidates in contexts where where they haven't won an election? Right. Yep. And I yep. think that's something that is important for people to get. So, yeah. So speak on that. Speak. What's the importance of people? You know, they're not going you know, they're like the Greens not going to win. Right. So what's the point? Why? Why push for a bill to get bail access? for parties that don't stand a chance in this Democratic Party hegemonic state? So I definitely want, you know, I'm always happy to answer that question, and I, and I will. But I also want to make sure that we understand the other part of this, which is about ballot measures and petition and referendum petitions. Um, and, I, and I'll get to that in a second. But look, I, th I think that having multiple parties allows, uh, doesn't, you know, the, the, the most 
simple position is it gives people a choice at the ballot box that allows them to say, I do not consent uh, to these folks being my leaders, uh, and I'm going to choose to vote for somebody else. Now, that isn't a symbolic act, but the symbolism that goes behind it says that there are people in the city who don't want uh, a certain set of policies. They don't want a single party rule. They don't want uh, they don't want their leadership to be chosen for them, and they want to be able to use their elections in order to be able to register their opinion. Now, would I like it if Greens and Ujima People's Progress Party were making up a quarter of the council uh, and were able to block and were able to wield power over vetoes and overrides and things like that? Absolutely, I would. My ultimate vision would say that there would be a multi-party coalition of grassroots organizations that had three of those Senate votes so that the Democrats, uh, anytime that they wanted to do a veto override, had to make sure that they were doing things in alignment with that. So if we look back to the conversation that we were having earlier today, if there were three independent folks in there who were either independent, UPP, or Green, and were willing to say, no, this bill uh, that we want to do a veto override doesn't move unless there's reinvestment in these communities on this other bill, uh, suddenly you have a power way greater than the number of people you have that hits right at the heart of how that supermajority works. So some of that is political science fantasy about the place where we're going to build to be able to have that kind of power to change those conversations. But at the fundamental level, in a in whatever kind of democracy we have, people should have the choices they need about the candidate or the choices about candidates that they want in order to express their opinions differently. Uh, we allow them in a general election right now typically to choose between Democrats and Republicans. And I think it makes just as much sense to expand that to a multi-party focus and say, when you go into a ballot in District 4 in Baltimore City uh, in the city council race in 2024, you should have multiple choices that you can look at. Now, we can talk all day about the importance of that. This year, the bill is more focused, though, on the ballot measure groups. And some of the ballot measure groups um, are folks who are, frankly, in a lot of ways, disgruntled Democrats who have found that the policy process of trying to go through the city council, for example, in order to get a charter amendment that would um, truly empower the grassroots, is is a process they don't want to go through. They don't want to compromise with the people who are chosen by the Democratic Party because they know that their values are larger than that. So some of the groups this year that are supporting this for ballot measure purposes, are, you know, Linda Dorsey Walker is with vote, vote for More in Baltimore County is supporting it because she thinks their ballot measure, which would provide four additional seats to the county, is a way to challenge the racial gerrymandering that the county has done with their districting. Samuel Jordan and the Baltimore Transit Equity Coalition is supporting it because they think that negotiating with the city council waters down the the powerful advocacy or the powerful regional transit authority that they're calling for that puts hands in the uh, power in the hands of the most affected people. Marsha Coleman Adebayo and Montgomery County and the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition are trying to get Montgomery County to put reparations on the ballot like Greenbelt did recently. And that too will require a, 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 a ballot initiative. And in Prince George's County, they're trying to reestablish the term limits that were put in place a couple of years ago, but were sort of in run uh, by, by the council, by the Democrats on the council at the time. So all of these organizations are also dependent on these petition signatures in order to be able to get their measure on the ballot. Uh, and, and again, most of those are organizations run by black Democrats, right? Uh, and 
you know, they have those folks have found frustration in attempting to get their righteous and racially just legislation passed through their Democrat controlled councils. And so are taking the constitutionally granted charter amendment authority that they have to put something in front of the voters that they think voters will agree to, um, that they don't want to go through the negotiation and policy process to get something passed. So I think it's, a, I just, I, I want to emphasize that while it is important for third parties and independent candidates, it is also important for those folks who are locked out of the policy process because they refuse to play the games or because the issue they're fighting for is too important for the kind of compromise that the, that the typical Democrat supermajority legislative process would force them to go through. Yep. Yep. And definitely appreciate that, that, that important piece around, um, you know, just the limitations on the policy process and empowering grassroots through that process. Because a lot of people, you know, it's it, people write it off because of how difficult it is because of the very problem you mentioned in terms of the ability to get signatures. Uh, before before I ask you to, to tell people how they can be supportive, if you could just tell us um, what, what is the nature of some of the opposition you're getting, both in terms of what's the rationale um, and where is the opposition coming from? So the when the issue was in front of the state board last time, um, when, this, when the issue was in front of the state board the, the last time, there were a few of them, including, um, you know, including a person from Baltimore City uh, who was suggesting that we re- that these groups really need to put in the shoe leather and just get out there and do the work and go out there and petition. Um, I think that was probably the first time he had heard the, the issue and he hadn't really thought about it that much. But a lot of the response is things like that is I need to look you in the eye while you're telling me about this petition so I can trust whether it's real. We've heard comments like that in the past. Uh, we've also heard people say it shouldn't be easy to do this. Um, you know, you should have to try really hard. Uh, to get an issue on the ballot or to strike down something that the legislature does. Um, and then the the most pointed and well-developed um, criticism came from Senator Penske last year uh, to Senator Carter. And his argument was that, and I don't agree with it, but I hear where he's coming from, that this makes it easier for well-funded right-wing groups to shut down good things that the legislature has done because it would just make it that much easier for Amazon to undermine a wealth tax or something like that. Now, um, I think that was his point at the time. I think he understands that if Amazon wanted to undermine a wealth tax, they would be able to do that anyway. Um, But I think he fears that it makes it a little bit easier for legislators to have their issue, have something important that they worked years on to get passed, put onto the ballot. And I mean, we can talk about what that fear means. And we, you know, uh, it's an interesting fear to me. It, It says we Democrat legislatures don't really want to put these issues in front of the people because we're afraid that they may not agree with us. And whether you like that policy or not, I, I think the senator is pretty openly saying that. Now, um, Senator Carter had some good conversations with him last year. Some of his constituents had some good conversations. And I think there's area to move him on it. But, you know, that's his opposition. That's the real opposition is that it makes it easier for voters to have power. Got it. Got it. So just real quick, um, tell, tell people how they can be supportive. 
Yep. So this bill, HB 1089, uh, is currently in Ways and Means, and it will be held. It will be heard in the Election Law Subcommittee. Uh, so if you have legislators who are in the Election Law Subcommittee, absolutely write them and tell them that you would like to see HB 1089 uh, voted out of committee and passed this year. Um, if you know folks that are in Ways and Means, uh, definitely. If you have if you have legislators that are in Ways and Means on the House side, definitely reach out to them as well. Um, we have every hope that it is going to pass this year. We think that it is a good bill and we think that it is a, a common sense bit of you know, grassroots democracy. But if it doesn't pass this year, we'll be picking it up again next year uh, and we'll be pushing. We'll be making a larger push um, with all of those groups involved, plus other groups in order to, um, you know, keep pushing this until we get it. We really think it's essential. Uh, and. The other thing I would say, too, is in addition to the legislation, if you see any of those groups that are out there and you liked what I said that they're doing, um, reach out to them and try to find a time to sign their petition. Because right now they don't have digital petitions and they need to see you in order for you to be able to support their thing, to support their initiatives so that they can get in front of the voters. Sounds good. Well, as always, I appreciate you, Andy, for bringing that. Um, again, we urge our listeners to follow up. Um, you know, follow up with, with Andy, the Green Party, and the other, you know, members that are part of the coalition that's pushing this piece of legislation. Um, and just let us know. Just keep us keep us informed about the progress of it. Absolutely. Will do. Thank you for the opportunity to come talk about this and be on your show tonight, Davon. All right. Take care, Andy. All right. Thanks. All right. So um, in, in, in closing, um, you know, we talked a lot today about just some broader issues and how they impact some real specific pieces of legislation. A few things I want to leave you all with, um, you know, before before I sign off this evening. First is that, you know, the next few weeks are crucial as it relates to moving things in the legislature. I mentioned on the CRB bill, the city state, the, the, the city Senate delegation is looking to move on the CRB stuff this Friday. So it'll be very important that people are diligent about it. This is that period of time where things end up on the voting list um, in various committees. So we're going to keep a lookout for what's going to happen um, on youth interrogations and juvenile justice. Um, we'll keep you posted about what's going to happen with cannabis. And I noticed uh, Brother uh, Anthony asked a question about what have been the major opposition to cannabis legalization. I would I would say mostly it's been um, a combination of law enforcement, both both police and prosecutors. Um, because, again, there's just such a reliance on cannabis as an instrument of public safety um, that they feel dependent on it. So there's that. Um, so that's really the opposition. And there is, as I mentioned in the beginning of the program, there is some elements within our community that are just conservative on the issue of consuming it. Um, and so we LBS has had to be clear, uh, particularly, you know, with folks who are just more conservative on it to tell them that this isn't about whether you believe that people should or shouldn't consume it. Because it's going to be legalized in the state of Maryland. It's a question of making sure that black folks are the biggest beneficiaries of it. But there are elements within our community that are just more conservative on the question of cannabis. So it's going to be very important that folks continue to you know, stay tuned. Um, you'll be seeing a slew of action alerts over the next few weeks. Um, the power of what we do is based on you all emailing your legislator, um, you know, sharing our stuff on social media, forwarding our um, email uh, updates and alerts, those things, again, they seem small, but are huge in allowing LBS to be able to represent you all in the state house, you know, in the interest of black people and black liberation. So we really, that's something I want to really, you know, urge you all to do and continue to do 
um, and support and support of our work. Lastly, you know, before I hop off, because I really want to emphasize this point that the level of conversation that we're able to have about real legislative activity, right? Too often, those of us with radical political sensibilities have been relegated to the margins and not had the political muscle to make some of this stuff happen. But as a result of the work that we do and many others that we partner with and our ability to be an independent Black grassroots organization and the advocacy that we do, the conversations that we have you know, on this podcast are conversations that inform you know, a lot of what legislators listen to. And so the level, our ability to have this level of conversation, right? Uh, hey, what's up, Teddy? <laughs> hey, what's up, man? Our ability to, to, to have this level of conversation, um, you know, in a context where we're able to actually move policy is something that is a credit to all of you all who continue to support this program and continue to support LBS. Um, and we're only going to grow stronger. We're only going to go grow stronger in our ability from a point where we don't have to we don't have to compromise our integrity as people of African descent, you know, struggling for the sovereignty and the power that we deserve um, that is necessary for us to protect and advance our interests. You know, the continued support that you all give us allows us to have this level of conversation where legislators can't get around us. They can't ignore us. They can't pretend that we don't exist. They used to do that. And there was a time we had to scratch and claw to get to a place where we'd even be around to be able to, to have an influence. But we're at a place now to resolve the support from all of you all um, over over many years to be able to actually have an impact on the policies that are being made. So I want to urge you all to continue to support LBS, continue to support Streets of the State House, support our efforts um, and continue to reach out to your legislator. Again, it may be small. It may seem simple. But sending it, sending something to your legislator provides a lot of leverage for us to be, to be able to continue to do the work on behalf of our community, particularly as it relates to black people, um, you know, in this context. So, again, I'm Davon Love, director of public policy, leaders of a beautiful struggle. If you like what you heard, please go to our website, lbsbaltimore.com to sign up to be a sustainer. Um, you know, we're almost at a, we're, I think a little over 600 people that give us money on a regular basis. We want to continue to build our base so that we continue to get the revenues we need to do more of this and continue to be independent, to be independent and advocate in a way um, that best uh, is suited for the interests of black people and for all those of goodwill. So, again, Davon Love, Director of Public Policy. Thank you all for joining us this, this evening, whether you watch this live or whether you watch it later. We thank you for your continued support. Peace.